I was a horrible roommate. Now, I blame my mom for this. And listening on live stream, she often hears all of the issues that she gave me as a child. But one of them is I am very, very particular uh, about living arrangements. And what it, what, it, what it means to live with me is often very, very hard. Um, growing up, the standard in our house, and my mom got this from my grandmother, the, the standard of way the house was kept was immaculate. There was never any clutter around the house. There were never clothes on the floor, shoes on the floor, the, and your clothes were washed, it, it seemed like, daily. And my mom and my grandmother, they, they dusted the house, it seemed like, regularly, almost every other day, and they vacuumed constantly. This was just kind of the way that they kept the house. It didn't matter how busy they were. My mom was a nurse. She went to nursing school, and yet the house was always immaculate. And so my first roommate kind of uh, got the brunt of such um, particularness when it came to living with me. And I'll never forget, we were just a few days into living together, and he made spaghetti and he left every single dish in the sink. Now, that's not a big deal to some of you. You're like, yeah, so what? But he left it there for like hours. And I would walk by the sink, and I would, I, I would see all of the dishes in the sink, and I would think, what, what in the world does this guy not know how to wash dishes? And eventually, I just became very, very frustrated with the dishes in the sink, and I just washed them myself. And I remember him coming in the room saying, what are you doing? And, and me looking at him thinking, you don't wash dishes. Do you not know how to wash dishes? And that was the moment I realized that I had issues when it came to being a roommate. And then my first roommate in college, he was from Louisiana, and he was very, very Cajun. Uh, he grew up in Louisiana, and he fished, and he hunted there, and uh, I came in one day after class, and there was tobacco spit everywhere on his desk, spread out, and it's built on his desk, along with catfish bait, and so the smell was just wreaking havoc in the room, and we nearly got into a fist fight, and by the way, this was at Bible College. Now, he eventually was the best man in my wedding, so we, we made up from that. And one of the reasons, I just took all of his stuff that day and, and just took, his stuff was on the, the side of the room when you come in, and I grabbed it all, and I said, we're switching places. And I just threw all of his stuff in a corner, and I said, here is the line. Your stuff never comes across this line. And again, we're still really good friends, but then I, then I went into... Danae's dorm room for the first time, and I came right back out and began to reconsider the relationship, and this is a true story, and there was, it, was, it wasn't like it was a mess. I, I just saw things that were out of order, and I thought, I, I didn't know females lived this way. I didn't know they lived in a way where everything wasn't just in its place all the time, and everything was clean. Well, 25 years of marriage and six kids later, God just keeps trying to teach me this lesson. And it is that I lack patience and I lack grace when it comes to living with other people. 
And we should be very thankful that this is not the way Jesus lives with us. Jesus comes to live with us when we believe the gospel. He comes into our life to take up residence, as we'll see in our text. And yet, he has a much different view of us and our disorder. He approaches us with grace and love in his attempts to change us and to straighten things out. He doesn't come in with frustration. He doesn't come in with irritation. He comes in with grace that transforms us. This is how Jesus lives with us. And this is how Paul, writing to the church in Ephesus, wants the church in Ephesus to live with one another. Remember the controversy in Ephesus. Gentile believers who have believed the gospel and they're trusting in Christ and yet their Jewish counterparts are telling them, yeah, we know you believe Jesus is the Messiah, but you're not really a part of God's family. You haven't taken part in circumcision, the festival, the days that celebrate our history. And so you're really not a part of this family. And Paul writes Ephesians to declare to these believers, no, if you're in Christ, you have everything. You're a part of the family. And as we saw in chapter one, you have every spiritual blessing secured for you in the heavenly places in Christ. You have everything that it means to be redeemed, to be secured in the grace of God that is displayed in the gospel. And so when we get to verse 14 of chapter three, Paul has Last week, we talked about his first prayer in Ephesians, where he is praying that they would see everything that they have in Christ. And here, the second prayer in the book of Ephesians is a prayer that they would be transformed by what they see. So he's praying, I want you to see everything you have in Christ. I want you to see everything that you have in the gospel. And here he's saying, I want that to transform your life. And in verse 14, he says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, my Father, Jesus' Father, and now in Christ, your Father, from whom every family on heaven and earth is named. And here, he's talking about the fact that God is the creator of all men, but he is also the redeemer of all men in Christ. And he's referring specifically to the church as he talks about every family of the church, those who are in Christ. Jew, Gentile, from every tribe, every tongue, every nation who has believed in Christ, God is their Father. And if that is you, he prays here that you would be transformed by this reality. Notice first we see Paul prays for transforming grace. Verse 16 says, I bow my knees in prayer to the Father and pray that according to the riches of his glory, he might grant you to be strengthened with power. Now notice he says he wants them to be strengthened. This means to be made strong or fortified with power. Now the power he's referring to here is transforming power. The power that changes your life. And in context, the power to live out the gospel together. I want you to be strengthened in light of what you have in Christ to live out the gospel, the power to live with one another 
in Christ together. Same gospel, same family. I want you to be strengthened to live out that gospel together. But notice in verse 16, he wants this to happen according to the riches of his glory. He wants God to answer this prayer for transforming power in light of God's riches. (laughs) The riches of his glory. And as we see in Ephesians, he's talking about the glory of God that is displayed in the gospel. The, The riches of grace, the blessings that come to us in the gospel that display God's character, that he is glorious. Here he's talking about God's infinite grace. I want this prayer answered in light of God's infinite grace that keeps coming to you with riches after riches after riches that prove God's glory, that prove he is infinitely gracious. Now grace refers to God's unmerited favor, his kindness to us, despite what we deserve. We deserve hell for our sin. We deserve God's judgment for our sin, and yet he gives us grace. He gives us what we don't deserve, specifically in Christ. He gives us infinite grace in Christ. When Christ pays for our infinite sin, this is something we don't deserve. And Paul says in Ephesians, God does this so that we would not boast in ourselves, and so we would give God praise for his glorious grace. And Paul says, I want you to be transformed by grace so that you would turn around and praise God for more grace. Even as Christians who know grace, Paul is praying for more grace. You see, when we give, it is according to finite resources. Anything that you give, from your person, from your wealth, from your resources, what you do for others, anything that you give, time and energy, that you give to serve others, you are giving from finite resources that are being depleted and that always need to be replenished. And so most often when we give, we give with a sense of angst. We're parsing out, how much can I give? We're calculating how much is going to be depleted from my accounts, my resources, my time. We're we're always thinking about those things. But that's not the way God gives. Because God is infinite. And here Paul's point is he is infinite in grace. And so when God gives anything, he's not worried about what it's going to cost him. He's not worried about himself being depleted. And get this, he's not worried about you paying him back as if something is missing. He's not worried about that. He's, he is determined to give lavishly. He is determined to give over and over in abundance so you would turn around and you would praise him for infinite grace. And here Paul is praying for that kind of grace to strengthen you and transform you as a believer. But notice how this grace comes to us. Notice, through his spirit in your inner being. Here we see the grace that God gives us that transforms us comes through the Holy Spirit, and it comes inside of us. Here we may even refer to our heart or the seat of who we are, the control room of what makes us who we are. 
He says, I want you to be strengthened there with grace through the Holy Spirit that will transform you. See, when you believe the gospel, the Spirit comes in and lives inside of you. Paul in Romans describes this as being baptized into Christ. You are immersed and intertwined into Christ when you believe the gospel because the Spirit lives within you. He indwells you. And here he says the Spirit living inside you, he prays because of the gospel, the Spirit inside you, he prays would give you spiritual strength. Now notice he's not praying for physical strength. He's not praying for material wealth. He is praying from the inside out, you would be made strong by the Holy Spirit as an act of God's infinite grace in your life. Elsewhere, Paul would say, as your outer man is fading away, the, the, the body in your life here on earth, it is deteriorating. And his prayer is as the, as the inward man is passing away, he wants the, 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 as the outward man is passing away, he wants the inner man to be renewed and strengthened by the Holy Spirit in giving us grace. But notice how this happens, verse 17, through faith in Christ. Notice the result of the grace that comes through the Holy Spirit in our life. Notice the result, verse 17, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That is the result of God's grace in your life. That is the result of the Holy Spirit's work in your life, is that Jesus, he says here, would dwell. The, the word means to take up residence, to make himself at home in your life. That is God's grace. That is the strength he wants for you, is that Jesus would begin to live within you in such a way that he settles down, that he makes himself at home. And you begin to make decisions according to Christ, not according to self. This is the result of the Spirit's work in your life, is that Jesus would take over your heart, that Jesus would take over your whole being, and that your desires and your actions would be transformed according to Jesus' authority. That is the result of God's grace in your life, and that is the power of God's Spirit in your life. And so you have to ask the question, if Jesus isn't making himself at home in your life, do you really know the grace of God? Are you really experiencing the power of the Spirit? If your desires aren't being changed, if Jesus isn't beginning through his word to make the decisions of your life, because here's the reality, Jesus doesn't live anywhere where he doesn't make changes. Jesus doesn't reside anywhere where things don't get shaken up and differences are made. But notice the last part of verse 17. How does this happen in your life? Through faith. This is confidence or trust in Jesus. And so we would say that Paul is praying for transformation by the grace of God through the Spirit of God as we trust Christ to make decisions for us. And one of the things Paul is teaching here is, yes, we are justified by grace alone through faith in Christ alone. Meaning when you believe the gospel, you are declared righteous. When you trust in Jesus alone, you are declared not 
guilty. You are in Christ by your faith. And God sees the righteousness of Christ. He sees the death of Christ for you. And he declares you not guilty. As though you've never sinned and you've always obeyed. That is who you are when you believe the gospel. And that is true of you if you believe the gospel. But here Paul's also saying, not only are we justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, we're also sanctified, made right, transformed by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. You see, what happened when you believed the gospel is the Spirit showed you Christ, showed you Christ cross for you, his life for you, the hope of a resurrection, and you trusted in him to save you from your sin. And then what happens in the Christian life is the Spirit keeps showing you Christ. And what you do as a Christian is you begin to trust him, not the one who saved you from sin, to be the one to lead you away from sin. But it it continues to happen by the power of the Spirit as you trust Jesus to make the decisions of your life for you. That's how he makes himself at home in your life. The Spirit shows you Christ and you continue to trust Christ and you continue to follow Christ. The reality is when we think about discipleship, when we think about the Christian life, you've got to get this as a Christian because so often we believe the gospel, it's all about grace. Now I got to get to work. Now I got to move on from something other than the gospel. I got to go through the essentials checklist. I, I got to get it all down. And what we begin to do is we train ourselves I'm saved by grace, but then I'm transformed by grit, I'm transformed by discipline. I begin to modify my behavior and look like other Christians. And we begin to live according to legalism, a law, a tradition in our own life. And Paul says, no, the only way you are changed is by grace through the power of the Spirit as you continue to trust Christ. That's why the preaching here, what we want to do more than anything is show you Jesus, show you Christ. From every page in the Bible, point to Jesus. And we want to help you apply those things. Sometimes we want to give you some advice on those things. But more than anything, we want Christ to be exalted. Why? When you see Christ as the victor over sin and death, what do you do? You trust him. And you give him allegiance. And you follow him. And we know that it is by the grace of God that the Spirit opens our eyes to Christ as we see him in his word. And that's why you must be in the word of God. If you're trying to change your life just by some do-goodisms, some discipline, and it has nothing to do with the word, and not just the word, but the word pointing to Christ as a good king who you must trust and follow, that's about you. That's pride. That's not grace. And that's why in everything we want to get back to the gospel. How does the gospel cause you to to love Christ more, trust Christ more, and be obedient to Christ? You may be asking, 
If Jesus has done everything for me, he died for me, he lived for me, and it's all about Christ, and all I have to do is trust in him, that means I don't have to do anything. No, 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 you don't understand the gospel. Because in the gospel, we see infinite grace, and we see God's goodness, and that he would send his son to die for your sins and live a life for you. And when you see how good God is in in that, You want to obey him. Why? You know everything that he is asking you to do is for your good. He's for my good in the gospel. He must be for my good in what he calls me to do in holiness and obedience. And that's how the gospel cultivates obedience. Through the grace of showing you Christ so that by the power of the Spirit you would trust him and follow him. This is how the grace of God transforms us. And so Paul's prayer here is for transforming grace, and it must be our prayer today. Some of you have come in here today, and you're struggling with very specific sin, and you've been trying for a really long time to just change it, to just do something different. I'm going to stop it. Let me ask you, when is the last time you tried to fight that sin with the gospel? Where you said, God, I know you've died for this sin God, I know you sent your son who who lived a life that is contrary to this sin and it has been credited to me and you've just gotten on your face and you thank God for the gospel in an attempt to fight sin and you said, God, show me your goodness in the gospel so that I would believe that you are better than sin and your commands that call me to repent of this sin are good. Why? Because you're good in the gospel. Work that into my heart by the power of your spirit. Give me grace to see your goodness. When is the last time you've got on your knees and you've prayed for transforming grace? When it comes to your marriage, when is the last time you got on your face and just prayed, God, transform my marriage. There's struggle here. There's conflict here. We need grace and we, we, need, we need the power of the gospel and, and, and we, need your, we need to see your goodness in Jesus who loves and dies for the church in a church who loves and respects him. We need to see your grace in that. When have you got on your knees and asked the Spirit to show you the grace of the God in the gospel in hopes that it would save your marriage? Are you just looking for some different kind of counsel? Or is it the gospel? Paul prays for transforming grace in light of the gospel. Praise that we would know transforming grace. And then here he says, in light of the grace of God, he prays that we would know Love. Notice as the text continues in verse 17. You've been shown grace. How how could Paul define the grace that has been shown in the gospel? He would say this, that you being rooted and grounded in love. When God sent his son to die for you and live for you, he was loving you. He loved you. And that's why I would say here, being rooted, it means being planted in love. If you're a Christian who's believed the gospel, you have been planted in love. This this is the, he says here, ground. You're grounded in love. This is the foundation of your life. If you are a Christian here today, this is the reality, the truth of who you are in the world. You are loved by God. If you know the grace of God in Christ, Paul says you're loved. 
And, and this is the foundation that your life is on. You've been planted in God's love. And you are meant to live life and produce life from being planted in God's love. His point here is this is the reality, the unshakable truth for the Christian. You are loved through the life and death of Christ. Paid for your sin, you are accepted. When God looks upon you, he sees Christ. He could not love you more. He will never love you less in Christ. You are loved infinitely. This is the unshakable rock upon which you as a Christian are to live. And by the way, he he chose to love you. He set his love upon you while you were a sinner. So now that you're in Christ, he's not going to turn his back on you. Why would he love you as a sinner, then give you Christ, put you in Christ, who he loves, and then forsake you? says don't even go there you are rooted and grounded in love and if that is the case notice his prayer continues verse 18 he prays that you may have strength to comprehend it see it's one thing for you to understand from the bible the theological concept the information of god's love the truth of god's love in scripture Paul wants more than that for us. He wants you to comprehend it. The word comprehend means to lay hold of. As a little Tennessee, hold. Lay hold of. To grasp. To apprehend it. You're rooted and you're grounded in love. Paul says, go after it. Believe it. Trust it. Apprehend it with your life. Cling to it. It is the reality of your life. It's not just an information that's out there, head knowledge. No, he wants you to grab it with your heart. Believe it, comprehend it. You are rooted and you are grounded in infinite love. Believe it with all the saints, Jew and Gentile. You have to believe this together. And it calls you to love one another. But notice his explanation. What is the breadth and length and height and depth? Here it is as if he is describing not just a foundation, but this cosmic diamond that engulfs our life of God's love. Infinite edges. And from the inside out, we will never see the end of God's infinite love. You you are planted in it. You're grounded on it. It is all around you, God's love. And Paul says, I want you to believe it with all your heart. And I want you to grab hold of it. No matter what you're going through, I want you to cling to God's love. I want you to apprehend it, comprehend it, cling to it. Through faith, the strength, power of the Spirit. He wants you to believe that God's love is infinite, boundless, and limitless. He says this it this way in Romans chapter 8, verse 38. He says, For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of Christ that is in Christ Jesus. Paul says you are rooted and grounded in love. And then he says there will not be one moment of your life where you're not loved by God. You're not going to be living life in God's love and all of a sudden get to the edge and go, oh, there's no more love here. 
Oh my goodness, I've gone too far. Oh my goodness, the weight is too much. God's love's not going to hold this. Paul says, no. You are loved infinitely, and I want you to live like you believe it. There's no edge to God's love where you've gone too far, and there's no weight too much that his love will not bear. I want you to believe that as you live. And he says in verse 19, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses all knowledge. Here the word know means to, it's not just information, it's to experience the love of Christ. And to have this experience that surpasses all experiences. It is to be loved by God. And notice he says the love of Christ. He wants to remind us that God's love is summed up in Christ. Jesus who would die for his enemies. Jesus who would live for his enemies. God who would send his son for people who sinned against him and hate him. That God's love is summed up in the work of Christ. If you... If If your concept of God's love is not rooted in the gospel and Christ, you don't understand love. It always comes back to Christ and what he's done for you in Christ. And here he says, that's beyond knowledge. Meaning here, while Paul is saying, while I want you to grab God's love and hold on to it, it's almost beyond being able to grab and hold on to because it's so vast. And it'll take you this lifetime and eternity, and you'll never get to the end of God's love. Ever. You'll never get to the end of it. That's what he's trying to explain here. It's beyond. It surpasses any experience, any fact of knowledge. There's moments in our life where we feel blessed. Hashtag blessed. At the beach with my family, I feel blessed. A lot of times we think, God loves me in this moment. He's given me a good day. And it's easy for us in those moments to say, yeah, God loves me. I feel God's love. There's times where we hear sermons or podcasts or lectures where we go, okay, that makes sense. I get it. And we can factually understand God's love. But then there's moments where it doesn't make any sense that God loves us. When life is just too hard. And the spouse is dying. The depression, it's got us. It will not let go. And God's love for you in those moments is beyond experience. But Paul says, I want you to go back and know He sent his son to die for you. In that moment, hold on to it. You haven't reached the edge of it. He's still there. He still loves you. Hold on to his love in that moment. Grasp it. Comprehend it. Cling to it. It's real. It's there. You haven't reached the end of it. And you'll never reach the end of it. Even in that moment, you'll never experience all of God's love. Believe this and live like it. And notice how he explains it. What does it mean to experience God's love? That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. The word filled means to be made complete. With the completion of God. The fullness of God. All that God is. Now what is his point here? To know God is to know love. 
To know love is to know God. And I want you to experience all of God's love as much as you can comprehend it. I want you to experience it. In 1 John, the Apostle John tells us that God is love. The very essence of God is love. You have a father who loves his son. You have a son who loves father. And then you have the Holy Spirit who loves the father and loves the son. And you know what the Holy Spirit loves to do? Fold us into that infinite love between the father and son. And Paul says, I want you to feel that. I want you to experience it. But how? You've got to believe it's true. How do you believe it's true? The cross. God's love. That's how you believe it's true. When it's beyond experience, you go back to the cross and you know and you believe God is love. How do you know and believe God is love? He set his love upon you. The Father loved you. He loved you enough to send his son to die for you. Jesus died for you because he loves you. And you believe that and the spirit brings you into that love and that fellowship of love forever. That's who you are if you're a Christian. Paul says, I want you to hold on to that. Because if you claim to know God, you are loved. Some of you are suffering right now. And what you need in this moment is to know God. Sometimes when we suffer, the last thing we want is for somebody to tell us to pursue God. And yet that's what Paul would say here. Is when you're suffering, you need to know God. Why? When you know God, you know love. And you need to be loved by God through your suffering. That's what he wants. Apprehend it. Hold on to it. Some of you are in sin today. And you may have come in and think, I'm going to tell you, you can do some good stuff. Pay God back. It's not transforming grace. You need to come in and feel the guilt of, maybe God doesn't love me because I did that. I'm going to tell you today, what you need in your sin is to know God. Because he loves you. He sent his son to die for you. How do you know God today? You confess that sin and you say, Even though I've sinned this way, your love is amazing because you died for this sin and I'm accepted in Christ and you lean in to knowing God. That's what you need today in light of your sin is to know God, is to pursue God. And that's what we have to do for one another. We see folks suffering. We got to say, we got to know God together because I want you to know even in this hard, difficult time, you are still loved. Even when you're in your sin, I have to push you to know God, confess your sin, run to God. Don't run away from him. Run to God and know God because in knowing God, you will know love and that's what you need. Notice how Paul sums up this prayer. He's praying here that we would experience transforming grace, that we would know God. These are his prayers for the church and he sums it up this way. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we would ask or think. What we know to even pray for, God will do more according to the power at work within us. What this means is I need transforming grace. Oh, you need it more than you ever thought you needed it and God will give it to you. To him be glory in the church and in Christ through all generations forever and ever. 
What is he praying for here? Is he prays for the glory of God to be known in the church. What he is praying for is that grace and love would be displayed in the church. This transforming grace that I'm talking about, Paul prays that it would be seen and felt in the church. The, the experience of love, the knowing love, he's, he's praying here, I want to see God's glory known in a church that loves one another. That's his prayer for the church in Ephesus, that Jew and Gentile would give each other grace and give each other love in the context of the church forever and ever. And he expects this prayer to be answered. Why? Throughout Ephesians, you've been united to Christ by the Spirit. The Father loves you. He's going to continue to do more than you even ask in the church because he wants his grace to be known in the church and he wants his love to be known in the church. This is a prayer that will be answered and Paul knows it because he said in verse 3, verse 10, or chapter 3, verse 10, the church is the manifold wisdom of God. What does that mean? The church is the expression of God's grace in the world and God's love in the world. When Jew and Gentile, people from different race, different ethnicity, different backgrounds, people who would normally not like each other gather together and they show one another grace and love, that's the wisdom of God. It's not just the wisdom of God, it's also the heart of God that is felt and experienced in the church. And so Paul would sum up this section by telling us, pray for transforming grace in your own life. Pray that you would know the love of God. Knowing God, you would know love. And then he says, then he would tell us to pray that this is seen in the church. If you're someone here today and you're experiencing transforming grace, the natural reaction is to be gracious to others. And we should pray to be a church that way, where we give each other the benefit of the doubt where we serve despite, despite sin, sometimes sin against you, and you still serve those folks, and you still love them, even though there's no reason that you should. But this grace is also transforming. A few weeks ago, I was meeting with someone. They were going through a really difficult time, and there was a really hard decision in front of them, and they were either going to choose God's way or their way. And we talked, and they felt confident in God's way. And I asked them, why did you meet with me before you made this decision? And they said, because I knew you were going to tell me what I needed to hear. Now, what does that have to do with transforming grace? Well, in the context of the church, we're gracious and we're kind to one another. We serve one another. And we're so gracious and kind to one another that it begins to transform those relationships to the point when I know I have sin in my life and a difficult decision to make because of sin, I can come to you and I know you're going to give me transforming grace. I trust you enough to tell me what I need to hear. And so grace isn't just looking past sin. It's transforming grace that addresses sin Paul would say that we should be a church that knows the love of God and shows one another the love of God in our unity. Pursuing those who are not like us is a display of God's love. And as we live in the world, we know there is nothing that I'm going to face. Death, depression, loss of a job, conflict, just really difficult, hard times. 
There's nothing I'm going to face that is going to separate me from the love of God in Christ. Why? Because I have a church that's going to love me no matter what. And Paul says, I want to see that kind of glory in the church. Grace and love in the church. But we have to know this only comes through the gospel. Because apart from Christ, we're really bad roommates. And yet he's calling us to be family, which is so much more.